Hello, this is Melissa Lau, Associate Pastor of Congregational Care and Missions at Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church. Thank you for subscribing to our podcast. Our sermon series for the month of October is based on the book of Matthew. Please jump in and learn along with us as we go on this exciting journey. Thanks again for listening. God bless. Thank you, uh, Praise Team. That, that song is a perfect segue into today's message of the term blessed that we're going to hear a lot today in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed um, comes up again and again. Blessed are you who are meek. Blessed are you that desire righteousness. Blessed. And if you go back to the original language, the word blessed there could be translated into happy. It could be translated into to be envied or fortunate or well off. And uh, I'm going to look at the term happy, because he he could also be saying, happy are you who pursue righteousness. Happy are you who are merciful. And so when I think about the word happy, you know, everyone wants to be happy, right? We're all looking to be happy, especially in 2020. We all want to be happy, right? We want, it's been tough. You know, I remember when that song, that movie Despicable Me Too came out, Farrell wrote a song called The Happy Song. We know this song? Because I'm happy. Come on. You know that song? Yeah, you, you've, heard, you've heard it. It's a great song. It's upbeat. It's, it's happy. And after you hear it on repeat a couple times, you think maybe the CIA uses this to interrogate people with. I'm not sure. But, but it is a cool song. I love it. Um, or I remember back in the 80s, Bobby McFerrin wrote the song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, right? Now, I won't sing that, but you can thank me later that it is now stuck in your head. You can thank me for that. Um, but happiness, blessedness, what is it? How do we get it? Albert Schweitzer said that happiness is no more than good health and a bad memory. I'll let that one sink in for a second. Comedian George Burns said that happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. Yeah. William Phelps said that if happiness truly consisted of physical ease and freedom from care then the happiest individual would not be a man or a woman. It would be, I think, an American cow. Something to think about. Another author, Claire Luch, said that money can't buy happiness, but it can make you awfully comfortable while you're being miserable. Yeah. For many, happiness is dependent on our fluctuating circumstance. If we're having a good day, then I'm happy. If we're having a bad day, then I'm unhappy. And in so doing, sometimes our faith in God can be the same way. If life is hard then maybe God forgot about me today. And vice versa, if life is good, God is good. Maybe we need to have a bit more bigger understanding of our faith and our sense of happiness or blessedness that we're going to see shortly in Matthew chapter 5. Now, every Gallup poll, Pew polls, have shown throughout the decades that people who are spiritual or religious are always at least twice as likely to be happy or to say in a poll that they are happy. Twice as happy. And it's true. Happy people are spiritual people. Happy people are, I would say, godly people. As Psalm 144 says, happy are those whose God is the Lord. But is happiness the end goal of our life? The day that I pass on from this life to the next, will I say I lived a happy life? And that's the goal of it all. Is that why we're here? See, the great irony of happiness or even blessedness is that the more you necessarily seek it, you won't really find it. It's not necessarily meant as a selfish pursuit. 
Happiness is meant to know, is knowing God, is knowing Jesus as Lord. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. See, God cannot give us a happiness apart from himself, but knowing God as their reward and the, our treasure, if you will, that he ultimately is the goal, is the goal really. And out of that may come happiness or blessedness. But if, you, if the pursuit of life is to be happy, you will never truly be happy. You'll become a happy person, actually, by becoming, seeking to become more of a holy person. And the closer we get to God, the more we grow in holiness as we grow closer and closer to him. And Jesus' words today in Matthew 5 are keys to a holy and a happy, blessed life. Now, many may have a negative view of the term holy. You could think you've met someone, oh, she's holier than thou, right? They stick their nose up in the air. I'm better than you, right? I mean, who do we really, really, really know like that? Maybe you do know somebody like that. Don't say it. You're in church, but, but or maybe that's you. I don't know. But uh, you know, usually the term holy, we don't really make that for a goal for our lives. We automatically think that we have to be better than others. But actually, if you grow in holiness, you become more and more of a servant. Actually, the holiest people I've ever known had no idea they were holy. Oswald Chambers said. Holiness, not happiness, is the chief end of a person's life. Holiness, not happiness. And there's good news. God wants us to be holy and happy. He wants us to know his blessedness. But we've known people who are like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? We know Eeyore. Eats thistles, sleeps outside in the rain, Eeyore. Maybe you are an Eeyore. I've certainly felt like an Eeyore sometimes. You know, he's grouchy, he's slow, he's... Uh, but see, God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be holy. But his definition of happiness is different maybe than ours. And we'll see that in the Beatitudes as they're called today. Before I get to that, it's good to know that our happiness as Christians is different than the, the definition of the world. See, as Christians, we see ourselves as sojourners in a distant land. We are pilgrims here. We know that God has put us here to be har harbingers of the kingdom of God, but we know this is not our home, amen? This is not our home. And so we're not to here have disdain for the earth, quite from it, far from it. We're supposed to love the world as Jesus did. But we live here and now in the tension of here of what is, and yet the promises of what will be. In the Beatitudes, Jesus repeatedly says, blessed are you, happy are you, that blank. For there will be, future tense, something better to come. So he addresses our present situation, but he also says the present situation is, going, is blessed because of what will be. And we live now within that tension of that, that God is with us, and we are blessed because of who God is in his presence and his promise of what is to come. But we live in the midst of that. That's why we sang Blessed Be Your Name this morning. I love the lyrics of that song. Because you, there's tension in those words. Blessed be your name on the road of suffering. I bless you when everything's going great. I bless you when it's not. Because God, you're worthy. You're worthy of, of you're bigger than my circumstance. And I will praise you into the future. So as we'll see here in, with the Beatitudes, they don't show us how to become a Christian. What the Beatitudes show us is what a holy and happy Christian life can look like, what it looks like. Because Jesus 
shows us his worldview, if you will. Jesus had a, has a worldview. Actually, we all have a worldview. If you think about it, uh, what a worldview is, it's just our filter or lens by which we determine reality, by which we make decisions. And Jesus shows us his worldview. He gives us a real practical worldview, actually, of how to live this life. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that can be difficult to apply directly to our lives. I mean, if, you, if you've ever started reading the Bible, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read Genesis, you know, Genesis. Exodus, Exodus, oh yeah, pillar of fire, fire, manna. And then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, oh man, I don't know what to do with Leviticus. There's actually really good stuff in Leviticus, believe it or not. But, or you get to Moses and the burning bush. Great story. What do I, what do, I do with that? Uh, Mo, uh, Moses on Mount Sinai. What do I do with that? Even, even lots of revelation that's fantastic and, and cosmic and huge. How do I apply that? And there are things to apply from all those stories. But in the Beatitudes, Jesus gives direct, practical stuff. Practical promises, practical happiness or blessedness, as he says. And as I said, he's showing us his worldview. Now, our worldview is influenced by our culture, by our education, by how we were raised by our parents, um, by even our politics, our books, the media we read, our teachers. It's not a question of if you have a worldview, it's what kind you have. And are you even aware of it? Jesus shows us his worldview. And Christians, I think, we need more of a biblical worldview, his worldview more than ever, um, by which we view the world and make decisions in our thinking. C.S. Lewis said this about worldview, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. There's a huge difference there. He says his faith as the filter of which he views everything else. Christians, we need a biblical worldview now more than ever because our increasingly divisive political worldviews are ripping our country apart. And we need to be, how can we be a peacemaker if you're always choosing a side? Think about that. If we're called to be peacemakers, as we'll see here actually in the Beatitudes, we have to be somewhere in the middle sometimes, somewhat apolitical perhaps. And that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> See, statements of Matthew 5, they're intended for believers. I don't think they're intended as governance or rules for government. His words are an invitation here to those who don't believe and a promise to those who do. And if you're listening today and you don't know what you believe, Maybe you're searching, you're seeking, you're still making sense of, of your life and who God is and how does my life play into all this grand tale in which I find myself. Know that Jesus' words today are an invitation to you. He says you are blessed. You can be happy even in your mourning. And he gives practical reasons why of God's promise for the future for all who will believe. So let's see these words in Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to stop probably throughout each one and talk about them. Because it's a lot to cover in a sermon, I'll tell you. Yeah, I could probably do one of these verses in one sermon. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain. After he sat down, that's a typical rabbi thing to do. They would sit. It's a position of authority. Sit. So then everybody else would sit. And they would listen to him teach in silence. And his and other translations say he began to speak, which means he had something important to say. Very important to say. And his disciples came to him, and they were there. Then he began to speak. He taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
Other translations say, blessed are the poor. Regardless, many times we read this and go, oh, if I'm poor, I'm blessed. Well, God loves you for, for sure. But I don't think he's speaking about financial poverty or riches here. It's not necessary. you're not blessed if you're poor, you're not blessed if you're rich. You're rich. God loves all of us equally. He's saying this is a, this is a state before God, the poor in spirit. If you know that you're, you're in spiritual poverty, if you know that you are a sinner separated by God and you don't know where to turn, Jesus says, blessed are you, blessed are the poor in spirit. God loves you. If you're in that place, he loves you. Four, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a future tense again. This promise. If you're poor in spirit, God, will, God is giving you an inheritance that is far beyond any amount of riches we could have in this world. If you're poor or you're rich, it's about your state and your heart before God. And then verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this is a tough one. Now, there are many people watching. If you're alive long enough, we got invited to a club we didn't want to get invited to, which is that you're missing somebody that you love. And there's many, all of us can probably think of many people. And Jesus says, blessed or happy even are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. See, when we mourn, it's a difficult thing to explain, especially for the person of faith. But when we're in a place of mourning, you're also in a place of perspective. I mean, today is All Saints Day in the Christian calendar. And in a little bit, when we celebrate communion, we're going to be reading off their names. These saints that have gone on to the life, the church triumphant, life eternal. We mourn. We miss them. But we also celebrate. Amen? We celebrate because they are alive. And so, yes, our mourning is not without hope. That's what the world does. That's not who we are. So Jesus is saying, when we mourn, you are, can be blessed. For you will be comforted one day. See, the more we mourn, though, the more I miss those who have gone on, I think about heaven more. I pray more. I give thanks for their life more. I give thanks for what they did to, to me and for me while I was with them. Amen? It's not those who mourn. We hate life. It's the opposite. I actually love life even more because they were in my life, and I know that they are still alive. So Jesus here speaks direct, even if you're not a religious person, he speaks directly into the, the tangible, fundamental issues of humanity. And he says, blessed are you, happy can be you if you mourn, for you will be comforted one day. In verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This inherit word comes back. Blessed are the meek. Now, when you hear this word meek, I immediately think of like a church mouse. Somebody who's like, oh, I talk like this, and I talk real soft, and... I don't want anybody to get, get you know, offended. That's not what meekness is here, right? You know, we don't, we don't, that's not what he's talking about. This English word can carry a lot of that, that we're very, like, quiet and, and humble and, and all of that. What meekness actually means here is strength under control. That blessed are those who, who aren't impulsive, but that harness the power of God in their lives, the power of the Holy Spirit. It's like... It's, it's, it's the same term in Greek they would use for breaking a horse or harnessing a stallion. Meekness. The power is still there, but a meek person controls themselves under the lordship of Jesus. See, the world values aggression, asserting yourself, demanding your rights, pushing people around. 
So it actually takes more strength to hold your tongue than to speak your mind. And that's what he is saying here. Blessed are you that control yourself, that are meek in that way, for you will inherit the earth. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be, again, will be filled. Now, I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving. Who's looking forward to Thanksgiving, right? I was about to put, I forgot to put up a picture. Have you seen a picture of people that took like a, a, a package of wipes, you know, and it's got the flip top thing to it? Someone made a mask out of that. Have you seen this? And you can open up the hole and like eat food. It's really weird. I haven't done this. But you have like, you have access port to your mouth, right? And, and it's like with Thanksgiving, is that what I'm going to have to do this year? I'm going to have to shove turkey through the access port so I don't infect someone. Like, I'm ready to be filled, you know? I'm ready to get full on Thanksgiving. Even if I die at the table, it's going to happen. I'm going to eat some gravy, and I'm going to have a good time, right? Amen. Because it feels good to be full and to hunger for something and then to receive it. And Jesus is saying here, a happy person, a holy person. They desire a righteous life. And Jesus says, if you do that, you will be satisfied. You will be satisfied. If, if righteousness is your hunger, that is the food you want, God will give it freely. He'll, he'll, he'll throw it out to you. Every good gift comes from the Father of lights above. That is a work actually assigned to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. When we hunger for worship, when we hunger for God, when we hunger for the Bible. When that's happening, that is God. That is the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God awakening us. And, and so I remember one church I was at after we did a, a worship service on a Sunday morning, uh, three or four people walked up to me and said, man, that last song was so good. I would love it if we could like just keep singing. And, and I said, pay attention to that. And we set up a worship night a, a week later so we could get together and keep going, right? Sometimes we overthink spiritual stuff. But that was a sign of God of saying, I'm doing something. Come on, right? And that's a sign of when you hunger and thirst for that, God says, I will fill you. Jesus says, you will be filled. So it's good to come to God hungry. You remember those frozen meals called Hungry Man? I bought those when I was a bachelor. Oh, they're awful. But it was, you know, it was free. I mean, not free, but it was cheap. Chef Chef Boyardee, frozen waffles, Hungry Man. Um, You know, it's good to come to church hungry, it's the best place to come, to, actually, when you're hungry spiritually. Because Jesus said, if you're desperate for God, and God says, I will satisfy this hunger of your soul. If you do this, you will be happy. You will be blessed. You will be filled. Then in verse 7, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Now, this to give us some clarifying point, this is not karma. A lot of times people think this is, Christians are, we believe in karma. We don't believe in karma. What karma teaches is that how I live this life affects my next life. I could could come back as a a kitten or something, (laughs) which wouldn't be so bad, actually. Um, But no, that's not, Christianity doesn't teach karma. That this life is a closed system, and we are responsible for our sin and life here and now. Um, And the Eastern religions teach that, and that's why there's a caste system and all this stuff. It's like, no, that we don't have karma. But he is saying you do reap what you sow. And that's not karma either. It's that you, you deal with the ramifications of your actions now in this life. And Jesus is saying, if you are a merciful person, 
to those around you, it'll come back to you. Verse 8 and 9, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy are the pure in heart. That goes back to the seeking the righteousness first. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Again, you can't be a peacemaker if you only always choose a side. And more than ever, we need Christians to be, it's hard, but to stand in that tension again, that middle ground, and hold hands and try our best to, 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 uh, to do that with God's help. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you, people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now, now people might gossip about you because of what you did, but if you are being gossiped and beat up about what you did for Jesus, then Jesus says, happy are you, blessed are you, because you're moving in the right direction. You're, there's going, you will be trouble in this world, but he has overcome the world. Rejoice and be glad for your reward, again, future tense, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When I read all of these statements of the Beatitudes, I see so much statements of certainty. There's no hedging his bets with Jesus. There's no maybes. There's no possiblies here, right? It's all certainty. And in postmodern America, we're incredibly suspicious of any, any statement of certainty. We are automatically like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, where's the punch? Where's the uh, sales pitch, right? It sounds too good to be true. Um, there, we think there's some agenda, because we've been marketed to our whole life. So we think any promise of God that sound this great, there's got to be there's got to be a catch somewhere. Jesus, yeah, I'm gonna get treasure in heaven. Come on, I'm gonna be filled if I search for righteousness. Come on, how is that possible? It sounds too good to be true, but it is. It's that simple. It is. It's too good. It is that good to be true, and it is true. But many people today are very simply suspicious of religion. They're just suspicious of any kind of statement of certainty. But I would say to anyone listening that has that mindset, where has that gotten you? Where does that get you? If you're always wary and on guard, Jesus is saying, lay it all down. I want you to be blessed. I want you to be happy. I want you to be holy. And you can't get there if you're always putting up walls and defenses. See, more than ever, people today need to hear statements of certainty, of absolute truth upon which we can build our lives. Because this world is crazy. And we need some certainty in our lives. And Jesus gives it to us here. Many people today, their decisions are being driven by fear. We're, being, we're afraid. We're afraid of offending someone else. We're afraid of saying this or that or doing this or that. So, and people are afraid of statements of certainty, of any sort of overarching meta-narrative that may tell us how to live our lives. But what if those statements and meta-narratives are true? What if they're actually good for us? What if it's what we were made to hear? See, Jesus gives no statements of certainty. I mean, he, yeah, he gives no statements of maybe, but certainty. Now, this makes me think about parenting phrases. How many parents do we have in the room? Any age, parents, look at this. Raise your hand at home. I'm watching, just kidding. No way I can do that. That'd be weird. Um, parents, we've heard a lot of parenting phrases over the years from your parents probably, and then you repeat those to your children, right? And then we start feeling very old when we do that. Uh, I start to sound like my parents. Here are some of the ones I heard when I was growing up. Ready? Raise your hand if these relate to you. Just wait until your dad gets home or your mom gets home. 
Oh, this is a good one. Because I said so. I've used that one. That, that's, that's a good one. Make no apology. Why? Because I said so. This is a great one. Shut the door. Just shut the door. <laughs> I'm not air conditioning the outside, right? Um, it's wherever you left it. That's the a, that's a one I've used. Or I saw that, right? I saw that. Uh, where are your shoes? Put on your shoes, put on your pants, and just let me finish my coffee. I read a um, great thing the other day, and it said, uh, may your coffee be stronger than your toddler. That's true. <laughs> or your tea, Melissa, thinking of you as well. Now, my favorite parenting phrase lately is, we'll see. We'll see. Can we do this? Can we go? Uh, we'll see. We'll see. And because I like to hedge my bets, I don't, and maybe I don't know. <laughs> maybe I don't know. And I want to inform my wife before I make a decision. Um, lately, my daughter has picked up on this phrase of we'll see, and she said, oh, that just, that just means no. <laughs> but here we see Jesus giving no answers like any of these. There's no we'll see. There's no maybe. There's, his answer are, are here is what is, here and now. Here's the practical blessings of God here and now. And then here's what will be. And because of the what will be, it influences the now. You will be blessed. You will be happy. Because of Jesus' certainty and authority, we can and should feel blessed and happy. And yes, holy. Because, it, he says, a future reward awaits us in heaven. You know, the Apostle Paul said in the book of Philippians, I have learned to be content in whatever stage of life I am in. Wow. That's a tough statement. Paul was in prison, by the way, when he wrote that. He was chained to a wall, sitting in was basically an open sewer. And he wrote, I have learned to be content in whatever situation I am in. So Paul is saying, you know, Jesus is saying, you're blessed even when your health turns bad. You're blessed even when your children rebel against you. You are blessed when there is even tragedy. You're blessed no matter who wins this election. Jesus is still on the throne. He always has been, and he always will be. See, many people today believe some modern-day beatitudes, and I made these up. Blessed are the beautiful, for they will live forever. Blessed are those who live forever, for they will have riches. Blessed are those who have riches, for they don't really need a conscience. Blessed are those with no conscience, for they feel no guilt. Blessed are those with no guilt, for they don't have to answer to the law of God. Now, obviously, these Beatitudes are untrue, but a lot of people believe this kind of stuff. The first step, I think, to knowing the blessing of the happiness that Jesus is promising us today is to also just admit to ourselves and to God who we really are is to look in the mirror and not deny it, to admit that, hey, I'm weak. I need forgiveness from God. I know I do. I know I need, I need, I need God, Jesus, to forgive my sin. Because Jesus says, be happy if you're downcast in spirit. Be happy even if you're mourning. But also be happy if you're merciful and you're seeking righteousness. Because it's just going to get better, he says. It's just going to get better. 
But the Beatitudes force us to be honest with ourselves. It reminds me of a story in the book of Matthew when Jesus says one day there was a publican, not a republican, there was a publican and the Pharisee, and they were both praying to God. We've heard this story maybe. And one, the, the Pharisee said, oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people. I tie the 10% of my income, and I have nice clothes, and I'm not like these scummy people on the street. Thank you, God. And then the publican stands off, which is more of like a public servant or even a tax collector, stood far off and beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, it was that man that went home justified before God than the religious person. We justify our sin because we see others who are worse than we are, but that doesn't make it right. See, God sees our hearts. He knows the intent of our heart. He knows our intentions. He doesn't look at the exterior. He looks at the internal. So one is way to know the happiness of God, even growing into the holiness of God, is to be honest with God and just lay it out there. God doesn't necessarily want you to be happy, but he wants you to be holy. And maybe out of the holiness will come happiness. So the first step, you could say, into growing in holiness and happiness is to, to be poor in spirit, to recognize maybe this, your state before God. And if you're listening and you're not a Christian, that could be you. Just to see yourself as you really are. And that's how, how the point in my life I got to one time as well. And I had to do the same. Many people in this room did the same thing. And they came before God and they said, God, I know I'm not all right. I know I can't fix this. And I need your help. So this, that could be the first step. And the second step could be mourning for your sin. Be sorry for what you've done. It's not weakness to admit when you've made a mistake. It's actually strength. It's actually a sign the spirit of God is at work in your life. Godly sorrow produces repentance. There's weeping before the joy. And then thirdly, believe you will have a change in attitude. That God will change your attitude and your intention, your desires. He'll give you holy desires that you're not better than anyone else. You're actually called to be a servant and to pour your life out for other people. And then fourthly, you'll have a hunger for God because God has changed your desire. He has sanctified your desire and he has made it holy. And my friends, one of the greatest actions ever that in history that gave us that gift, that gave us that opportunity to, say all, to experience all these things that I've said today is the act of Holy Communion where we remember the work that Jesus did on our behalf on the cross on that night of Passover. So let us pray together as we come before the Lord's table this morning.